At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Assembly Required, Building a Case for Church, where we'll see what the Psalms teach us about a life of faith lived in community. Amen. Well, last week we started a new series. It's called Assembly Required. And if you recall from last week, what we're doing is we're looking at the Psalms and we're diving into the Psalms and we're looking at the importance of gathering together as the saints of God. We're looking at the importance of gathering together in the church as we are doing right now. And what we're looking at is what are the most important things that we must have when we gather together as the saints, as those people who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Last week we looked at Psalm chapter 1 and we learned that we must delight in the word of God as we gather together. Uh, there was a challenge last week for you guys that you would read the word in the morning and that you would read the word in the evening. I pray that you continue to do that, that we would make this a practice in our lives. Read the word in the morning and read the word in the evening and see how it transforms and changes your life. We learned that those who are blessed, who have God's favor upon them, are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor live in their ways, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and in their law he meditates day and night. And so we learned the importance of God's word in the gathering. Well, today we're going to continue to dive into Psalms, in Psalm chapter 51, and we're going to see the importance of confession in the gathering of believers. We're going to learn the importance of confession of our sins in the gathering of believers. So if you have a copy of God's word, uh, please open there with me to Psalms chapter 51, near near the center of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, I know uh, almost 100% of you probably have a phone with you, uh, so no excuse not to be diving into word together with us this morning. Psalm chapter 51, we here at Woodside use the English Standard Version. I've I've heard it called the Elect Standard Version, uh, the only true version of Scripture. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of awesome, solid versions. We've just chosen the English Standard because we believe it's very solid to the original text. So uh, Psalm chapter 51, and what we're going to be looking at here is we're going to be looking at a psalm written by a guy by the name of King David. And if you know of David, you know David has been called a man after God's own heart. But what we're going to see today in Psalm chapter 51 is when the man after God's own heart feels far from the heart of God. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you're someone here today who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're somebody who's never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And you're sitting here today and you're saying, what is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? Well, today you're going to find the reason for that. Maybe you're someone here today who does have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but there's a sin in your life that's ever plaguing you and it won't go away. We're going to find what it is for a believer in Jesus Christ to confess before God today. Maybe you're somebody here today who is celebrating God and you feel you're in a great relationship with God. Well, we're going to learn the joyous celebration of confession today. So let's go ahead and dive into Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. 
Now, as you read the Psalms, I want to teach you something here. You probably may already know this, some of you, but I just want to uh, let you know. There's these things called subscriptions uh, over the heads of these Psalms. So if you look here at Psalm 51, it says, To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, you may know the story of what happened here, what led to Psalm chapter 51 and what that account is actually talking about. But for those of you who don't know, I want to let you in on it. So David, he, he grew up as a shepherd boy, and uh, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath, and we see accounts of David's life throughout his childhood and throughout uh, his time in the house of Jesse. We saw as he encountered Goliath that he trusted in the Lord, and he knew that God was greater than any enemy that could ever come against him. He lived his life for the glory of God alone, and God slayed Goliath for God's glory. And so that's David. Maybe some of you have heard that story of David and Goliath. But then we see some more accounts of David's life. And really the thing that David is known for is David was the most renowned king in all of Israel. And like I said before, David was actually called a man after God's own heart. But David was a sinner. Just like every person who's ever been born. It's interesting, as we look at the scriptures, we will see that even the greatest people of faith mess up big time. So David becomes king. And, and we see in uh, 2 Samuel, we, we see the story of what happens here. We see David, he's, he's at his palace, and it says, uh, at the time when kings are supposed to be at war. That's how it starts off. At the time when kings were supposed to be at war, and, and David is standing in his home, he looks down from his high place in the palace, and he, he sees down, and he sees the wife of one of his most faithful soldiers, Uriah, bathing. He sees her, he lusts after her, and he brings her to his home, and he sleeps with her. And what happens because of that is she conceives a baby. Well, instead of admitting his sin, David, to try and hide face to something even more horrific, he arranges for her husband, Uriah, who is one of his most faithful soldiers, to be killed in battle. He had all of the enemy, all of his army charge into the forces of the enemy, and then all of them stepped back beside Uriah, and Uriah was killed. After this time, David, uh, after a time of grieving, David brought Bathsheba into his home and made her his wife. And what we see at the end of that text is something that's ominous and is something that we, uh, we, we should be perplexed with as we see the end of this story. It says in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But then we see this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David had gotten away with adultery and murder and before his nation. But it says the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. So we know this isn't the end of the story. God sends a prophet, a man who speaks on behalf of God, to talk to David. And Nathan comes to David, that's the prophet's name, and he tells him a story. He tells him a story of two men. He tells the story of a rich man and a poor man. Now this rich man, he is very wealthy. He has all kinds of livestock and all kinds of sheep. And then it tells of the poor man. The poor man owned only one little lamb. 
But he loved this lamb as a member of his family. It was kind of like his puppy, except he let it eat at his table, and he took care of it. And I, I imagine he held it, and uh, it was just this precious object to this poor man. Well, what ends up happening is one day the rich man has this gigantic feast, and he has all his friends over, and he knows that he needs to cook a meal for them. So they decide that that night they're going to have lamb chops. And so instead of going to his large number of sheep, guess what he does? The unthinkable. He goes into the poor man's property, he takes his one and only lamb, he kills the lamb, and then he feeds it to his guests. That's horrible, isn't it? That's horrible. And David, he responds with anger as a king rightly should. It said, then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And Nathan looked at David. He said, you are the man. You are the man. Can you imagine how that phrase burnt into the mind of David? Imagine how David broke at that very moment. He breaks and he, he weeps and he confesses and we see that God forgives him. But something that we see here is that even though this sin was something that David had come before God and he had said, God, have mercy on me. And God had had mercy on him and overlooked this sin, even though there was consequences to his sin. His son died and there was a curse upon his family for the rest of their lives. David's sin is plaguing him. Psalm chapter 51 is written one year after the incident I just talked to you about. You are the man. And this sin is plaguing David's mind. Let's go ahead and read that text together. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. We see David crying out to God. 
And we see some key things within this confession that we as Christians can learn we should do when we come before God with sin that we confess. And we're going to see a beautiful truth that cleansing and joy come through confession. Cleansing and joy come through confession of our sins. Cleansing from our sins and joy of our salvation come through confession. And as we look at this, we're going to learn a few different things as we see David's confession. First, what we see with David and something we have to know as we go before God in confession is we remember who God is. We remember who God is. Look at David here. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Look at David. Look at how he comes before God. First, he realizes that it is only God who can give him this mercy. Second, he remembers who his God is. Look at this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to two characteristics that we see of God. According to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. These are the characteristics of God that David looks to right here. And this idea of steadfast love, it's a term that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe God. It also could be talked about as undeserved love or faithful love. Namely, you could translate it as grace. Grace, unmerited favor, something that David doesn't deserve. He says, have mercy on me, O God of steadfast love, O God of grace. And then he says, according to your abundant mercy, God is a God of mercy. If we come before God in confession, he does not give us what we deserve, which is the punishment of our sins. He gives us grace and he gives us mercy. Isn't that an incredible truth? Isn't it incredible that that is who our God is? He's described as a God who is steadfast in love and abundant in mercy. That's the God you come before when you confess your sins. You may have been raised in a tradition that you see God as a tyrannical God who is only wrath, who is only anger, and he's waiting up in heaven just waiting for you to mess up so he can smash you with his hammer. The reality is there are characteristics of God that are wrath, but it is wrath against sin. It is wrath against unrighteousness. It is just anger. That is our God. But God is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness to all those who will confess their sins and come before him. This is our God. I want you to think about two different fathers for just a minute because God is called a father. The first father is a father who's prone to fits of anger, who is impatient, who is unforgiving, and who will never let you forget your sin. The second father I want you to think of is a father who is very serious about your sin because he loves you deeply. Who's very serious when you go against the rules of the home because he knows that those are so important. Yet while he is serious and he does not let sin slide, he also is merciful and gracious and loving and forgiving. He's the father when you come to him and you confess your sins. He says, listen, there's going to be consequences for your actions, but no matter what you do, I'm going to love you. Now, which father do you want to come before and confess your sins to? 
Our God is a God abundant in steadfast love and mercy. So we remember who our God is. The second thing we do is that we recognize our sin or we know and own our sin. We know and own our sin. We recognize our sin and we repent of our sin, meaning turn away from it, confessing it. Look at David here. He says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, my sins. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See, what David does that we must realize is he knows his sin. He knows he has sin and he owns it. It's so vitally important for believers in Jesus Christ and all those who would come to relationship with Jesus Christ if you don't know Christ to realize that we are sinners who miss the mark of God's holy standard. That we sin constantly and we must be confessing before God. We own that sin and that's what we see David does. John Calvin, who's a, a prolific writer, he's a, he, he was a pastor back in the times of the Reformation. He writes this. We will never seriously apply to God for pardon until we have obtained such a view of our sins as inspires within us fear. We have to be very serious about sin. And we have to realize that even if you're a Christian, you will still sin. Now, it is not something that we say, well, okay, I'm just a Christian. I guess I'm just going to keep on sinning, so I'll just keep doing it so God's grace may abound. Well, the Apostle Paul answers that in Romans chapter 6. He's asked, shall we go on sinning so that God's grace may abound? He's like, absolutely not. Why would you even think to ask that? didn't say those exact words, but that's what it would translate into our language. But look at David. Look at how he sees his sin. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It never leaves him. No matter what he does, his sin is before his eyes. It haunts his days. It is his nightmare. He can never stop thinking about the sin that happened a year ago. He's haunted by it. He knows his sin. And then he owns it. Look at how he goes in verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now that's a bit confusing, isn't it? That doesn't make sense. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wait, didn't he sin against Bathsheba? What about Uriah? I bet if you went and asked Uriah's dad or his mom, if David sinned against their son by taking his life, they would say, yeah, he did. And if I ever see that guy, I'm going to take his life too. But what is David saying here? How is this in the scripture? What does this mean? See, what David does is he looks into his sin and he realizes that 100% he sinned against Bathsheba. 100% he sinned against Uriah and his nation and Uriah's family. But he knows that ultimately all sin is against God. All sin is against God. So kiddos, when we disobey our mom and our dad, you're disobeying God when they've been put in authority over you. 
When we, in our lives, we sin against our brother and sister in anger and hatred, we're sinning against God because he created our brother and sister in his image. All sin is against God. And David realizes that. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Then look at this next part. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, what I'm about to say is a little difficult. It's a little difficult to grasp, not grasp, but to palate. You can hear it and grasp it really easy. It's just not an easy truth. And it's one that a lot of people won't tell you. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David sees here that because of his sin, he deserves the judgment of God. Because of his sin, David deserves the judgment of God. Now, I've met a lot of Christians, and, I, and there are some who know that they ultimately, because of their sin and their sinful nature, deserve the judgment of God. But there are also a lot of Christians who think, well, I don't deserve God's judgment and God only needs to give me things that I want. I would say that they should question if they truly know that God. Because sin, sin separates us from God. Sin is serious. And we deserve the judgment of God. I want to stop here for just a minute and I know there's two different type of people in this room right now. There's a person like me, who I don't struggle realizing that I am a sinner. I don't struggle realizing that I deserve God's punishment. I don't struggle with those things. What I struggle with is remembering who my God is. What I struggle with is remembering that we serve a God of grace and mercy. What I struggle with is a God who smiles over me. What I struggle with is a God who knows my name. So if you're somebody here today who right now, as I read this, you're getting more and more depressed and going, I'm a wicked sinner. And you realize that from the very beginning. And all you're realizing is, well, you just told me what I already knew. I'm just a wicked sinner. But if we leave it there, then we miss it. If we leave ourselves in the fact that we're a wicked sinner and we don't respond because of it, then we miss it. So stick in here in a little bit. We're going to talk about the response of a Christian. We're going to talk about celebrating God's salvation. Okay, so as we look at this, just remember that. If you're that person who's in that camp where you realize you are a wicked sinner, but realize that you serve a gracious and holy and righteous and powerful and mighty Father who deeply loves you if you surrender your life to him. David continues again. He's just feeling this sin. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean David was had outside of wedlock? Is that what that means? No, it's not what that means. David was had within a marriage relationship. What he's talking about there is he realizes that it's not only his actions that make him sinful. At his very core, from conception, he is sinful. That's what that text says. This is one of the most beautiful texts for defending the life of the unborn. He says, from conception, I am sinful. There is a life at conception. 
And so as we look at that, the beauty of this text, he realizes though that that at that point he at his very core and his very nature is sinful. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 reaffirms this. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. You could add the words in Adam there. This idea that we have inherited sin from Adam and because the fact that we're a human being, being born, we are sinful. Now that's not where it stops because the text tells us there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. We miss the mark of God's holy standard. We go after our own fleshly desires. So we're sinful by nature and by our choice. We will only choose to go away from God and go away from him into sin. This is such an important thing to grasp. You may have heard it called the depravity of man before. It's such an important thing to grasp as we look at our own sins. The text continues, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What David's saying, he's like, at my very core, you want me. You want me to be truthful at my very core. You want me to be sold out to you at my very core. That is what you want, God. You don't want lip service to proper doctrines. You want my life and you want everything that I am. You don't want to know that I can memorize and say John 3.16 and I held up a sign at a football game one time. You want to know that my whole life is dedicated to you and we realize that we could never earn a relationship with God apart from him. He says, behold, you delight truth in my inner being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So the first we need to do is know and own our sins. But next, we request God's renewal. And we beg for inner transformation. Look at what it says. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now listen to that word, shall. We don't use that word shall very much in our culture today. But what it is, it's a word that means guaranteed. You can bank on it. You shall do this. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What is hyssop? What is that? Is that like a snake? Something it does? It's hissing and then it... What is that? Hyssop. Well, hyssop meant a lot to the Jews back then. It was important in their ceremonial purifications. It's actually uh, the item that was used to spread the blood on the doorposts in Egypt as the angel of death passed over their homes. Also, what we see is this was also used in ceremonial sacrifice where blood was sprinkled on the altar with this hyssop. If somebody had gotten leprosy when, uh, when they were declared clean, the hyssop was sprinkled upon them. And what this meant was that you are pure, you are clean, you're ready to go before God and worship again. And David says, it's only you who can do this. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isn't that beautiful? God can and will purify you from all unrighteousness, forgive you of all sins, and wash you whiter than snow. Listen to Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
David is coming before God and he feels dirty. He feels gross. He says, wash me, God. Purify me. Cleanse me. Make me holy. Make me pure before you. And God says, I shall. That's powerful. He realizes it's only God that can cleanse him. And he asks for God to change him. And this idea that God would do this, he says, listen, God, let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David realizes that he's at this point because God has broken him down to bring him to this point of surrender. He says, let me hear your joy again. You may be someone here today who's saying, God, let me hear your joy again. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remember when you gave your life to Jesus? Remember when when you gave your life to Christ and you were on fire and you wanted to just tell everyone in the whole world about Christ? But as the years go by, for some of us, that, that, that dies and it becomes embers in a fire. That's why we're told in Romans that we're to fan that back into flame and be zealful for the word of God. Be passionate for his word. Be passionate to tell others about Jesus. Be passionate to say, listen, you know how many people out there right today are feeling dirty outside those doors? You know how many people today who put on a really nice face or maybe put on really nice clothes or live in really nice houses who really at their very core are dying inside? They need Jesus. They need to be washed whiter than snow, yet we have to recognize and know our sin and then come before him in confession. He asked David, David asked God to cleanse him. You know, sometimes I think of confession as as an extreme home makeover. Uh, My wife and I, we like to watch some of those HGTV shows. We like that show Fixer Upper. Anybody watch Fixer Upper? All right, so you gals know what I'm talking about. Uh, that show, it's about uh, this couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines, and uh, they go into these homes that are, are, are broken down, and they go in, and they tear out all the inside of it, and they rebuild it into something new. Well, I think sometimes we think of confession as just demolition day. Demolition's day when they go in with the jackhammers and the sledgehammers, and they tear everything down. And if you know the show, Chip Gaines, he, he loves this day. It just rips out everything to the very studs. But so many times we stop there and we reside within an empty home. We don't realize what that house could become. We don't realize that as they come back in and they build up those walls and they put in all those beautiful touches and the decor and the beams in the ceiling and the farmhouse decor and all of these types of things, how gorgeous that home becomes because it doesn't stay ripped down to the studs. It gets built back up into a beautiful creation. That's the way it is with God. With confession, we're ripping out that sin. We're ripping out those things within us that are displeasing to God. But then we are saying, God, we make me. And this is what David does in the rest of the psalm. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with the willing spirit. Then he says this. He says, listen, if you do it, I'll teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. God, deliver me from blood guiltness. O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. 
For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. The last thing we have to see from our text today is we must celebrate God's salvation. That's the beautiful part for those of you who don't struggle with seeing yourself as a sinner. But maybe you struggle with celebrating God's salvation. Celebrating the fact that God has saved you. David says, listen, God, just purify me. Give me joy again. Let me follow you as I once did. And I will teach transgressors your ways. And I know that sinners will come to you because it's guaranteed, God, that if I preach your word, that is what brings life and you will save. David says, he says, deliver me from blood guiltness and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He says, I'll praise you every time my mouth is open, oh God. He says, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And then he says, whatever you want for worship, I will offer to you. He says, for you do not delight in sacrifices or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Just as we prepare to close here today and as the team comes forward, I just want us to, to think about this text. I want us to see those words at the end. David says, whatever it is, Lord, that you want, whatever you delight in, whatever sacrifice you want, I'll give it to you. If you wanted a burnt offering, I'd give it to you. But he realizes what the sacrifices of God are. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. But here's the truth. Brokenness is not something that's looked up to in our society today. When a man cries, sometimes they're seen as a weakling. Yet, yet look at this. He says, God, you want a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What this is talking about is a heart that is before God in submission to him. As if you think about a wild stallion, a horse that a, that a horse tamer takes and he breaks that horse. And once that horse is broken, it follows along the leadership of that horse trainer. And the bridle that we have is the word of God. And that horse deeply loves that tamer. And that horse follows after that tamer. And this is the broken spirit and a contrite heart. It's a heart that says, God, how can I ever stand before you? And then says, but thanks be to God. Praising him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.